Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, bringing together the best technical leaders to talk about the industry passions and challenges they are facing. I'm Rachel Connolly from Evolution Recruitment Solutions, helping businesses connect with top tech talent, and today I am your host. Today we are going to be discussing the topic of building and sustaining high-performing product teams. I'm joined by Finley Page from Roboticon, Matt Collings from Croto, and Thomas Stupnicki from FXCM. Before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work away our let's work our way around the room with some introductions. Finley, do you want to kick us off with a, a brief introduction? Yeah, great. Thanks, Rachel. Um, yeah, so I am Finley, yeah, director of product at Roboticon. And we bring a small, engaging robot into the classrooms around the world, trying to boost engagement in STEM subjects. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Finley. Matt, welcome to you next. Thanks a lot. Yeah. Uh, so, hi, I'm Matt Collings. I'm a head of product head of product at Crotos, not Croto, Croto. Um, <laughs> so that's the first correction. Um, and uh, yeah, so we make um, audio software and audio technology that's uh, widely used in the entertainment industry. So uh, films, games, post-production, uh, TV, um, all over the world to make uh, music and sound effects for uh, media of various kinds. Thanks, Matt. And Thomas? Thanks so much, Rachel. So, Thomas, I am a product director at FXCM. We are a provider of investment platform, a trading platform for the retail and institutional customers. Uh, I've been in product space for the last 20 odd years, and I think I'm on the lucky side saying that product is not my job, it's also my passion, so looking forward to speaking to you about product today. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Now we're all introduced, let's uh, move on to the topic in focus. So you all have a couple of questions or statements on building and sustaining high-performing product teams. Um, as usual, I'll work my way around the room asking each of you to pose your question um, and the reasons behind it. Each of you will also have the opportunity to give your take on the situation. So, Finley, one of the things you wanted to discuss, first of all, was the motivators that people find to be most effective in enhancing engagement within teams. Would you mind just giving us a little bit of, of context behind that your question um, and we can work our way around the room to, to get people's thoughts on it? Yeah, certainly. Yeah, thanks, Rachel. So, uh, yeah, Robotical is a small startup and a constant challenge is you know churn. Um, it takes quite a while to you know really build um, the knowledge to deliver product when it's such a complicated hardware piece. So I'm constantly looking at further ways to you know motivate and improve retention within the company. So um, yeah, I'm looking for ways in which other people do that. You know, currently I feel that transparency is probably the more important area to consider. Um, certainly as uh, when we're such a small team um, making sure that everyone's aware of exactly what's happening certainly seems to help as a motivator for us but yeah I'd be interested to know if that carries across to everyone else's experience. Uh, Thomas we come to you first on that one. Yeah thank you so it, it is a very nice challenge really I mean having worked in startups myself what I believe is the case is transparency is definitely very very important but also on the other side you've got the job security right Startups are quite challenging environments where people are asked to deliver way beyond their comfort zone and also way beyond their job description, right? And quite often it's also the case that people are just not ready for this kind of environment, especially if they come from the corporate environments where their role was very, you know, cut to the to the job spec and they were never asked to, to go beyond. Uh, from the motivation perspective, I think it's empowering people to deliver. It's giving giving them the freedom of choice and 
trusting them as well, making sure that I know that you are a great talent. I know that your value is very much appreciated and I want you to contribute. And I think if you, if you look at that, that level of motivation, it starts to becoming much more prominent and important over financial incentives because in startups, we often don't have enough funds to, you know, pay for the humongous bonus at the end of the financial year. Right. But what we do have is we can create this great culture that will keep people self-motivated and will keep people engaged and willing to deliver and willing to go beyond. Thanks, Thomas. Matt, do you have anything to add on that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes, yeah, so firstly, well, yeah, definitely echoing everything that Thomas just said. I think, yeah, that's definitely my experience as well. Um, I mean, for us, we are, we are we're kind of in a scale-up stage. Rather, so we're just beyond startups. So still quite early stage, really. Um, something that I've noticed really effective is like looking at motivation on a kind of structural level of like how you structure your organization and structure the teams and giving them trying where at all possible to give them autonomy and motivation to tackle problems themselves in the way that they want to i think that's actually really really important in providing motivation to people like i totally agree with what thomas said about like financial incentives and stuff especially for companies of our size are less important like the thing is to kind of have people paid for example in a way that it takes the conversation off the table but like offering them necessarily more money is not what's going to motivate them. Most people work for us because they're excited about the space. They love like audio. They want to do cool things. And then I think our job as managers is to try and set them up for success by giving them a clear direction and then just getting the hell out of their way. Um, and then just removing the blockers as they go and just trying to really focus on those problems. That can really, I think, have a, a massive impact. So I think a lot of it is, you know, individual incentives but i think a larger thing is like how you actually structure your organization and your and your your product teams and then how you kind of you know maintain that like health of those uh things once you put them in place i think one thing i just wanted to quickly add is we are talking about the importance of culture importance of the soft areas right but let's not forget that money is also important so we can't say that we focus purely on culture we focus purely on motivating in you know empowering people we also need to pay them we also need to incentivize them in that much more financial matter because it matters, right? It's what people use to buy the bread for. Uh, so I think we need to find the balance between the, that empowerment and that financial incentives as well. Thanks, Thomas and Matt. Finley, can I just go back to you on that? Would you kind of agree with, with those points in, I suppose, getting the balance and have you got anything to add? Yeah, certainly. A really valuable point around the fact that in early startup, in early stage, um, we're not always able to financially compensate to market rates and so culture becomes incredibly important making sure that we um have I mean, we do have the rare opportunity to be agile in the way that we individually support and compensate our um yeah our staff members you know we can have these one-to-ones still you know, the CEO of the company can still have one-to-ones with individual members all the way through the company so that gives us a little bit more visibility on their individual requirements and then um, gives us the capacity to uh, provide unique deliveries to them. Perfect. Thanks, Finley. Um, so, Matt, we'll come to you next. The first thing you wanted to discuss was uh, what skills make up strong product teams. Um, do you kind of want to give us a little bit of context behind your question? Sure, yes. Yeah. So I think with the context for me, with pretty much all the answers I'll give is that I think our, our product organisation is still very young. And like part of what I'm trying to figure out is how to how to build that and how to scale it. Um, so that's something that I'm still really interested in. So this sort of makeup of skills, I think, is a really interesting one and, and an important one. Like, I'm just really interested to see how people have approached that, um, particularly like how they've um, had experience with building cross-functional teams, 
how those have been successful or not, what made them successful and all these type of questions. Perfect, thank you. Thomas, if we come to you first on that one, I know um, with your background working in big companies and slightly smaller ones as well, I think you've had quite a, a decent amount of value to, to add there. Actually, sure. It is a good question, uh, and one which is quite difficult to, to answer as well, because when you look at the at, at the at the, at the people across organisations, um, there are some people who are very strong technically, there are other people who are very strong commercially, there are other people who are blend between tech and commercial skills. And I think when it comes to product management roles, we are looking for the last version of, of, of the candidates, right? You need to understand technology, if you work in technology, you need to understand your target market, you need to understand your customers, you need to understand uh, the way the product lifecycle really shapes up and and, and, and is being delivered to, to, to the market. But also on the other hand, you need to be very flexible, right? Because we pe- people in product, we are jacks of all trades after all, right? We need to be responsible for the delivery of the software. We need to be responsible for the production. We need to be responsible for support for everything, right? And making sure that people are comfortable uh, putting or changing the hats as the situation forces them to, to do so. I think that is what I found to be very, very important, right? So the flexibility in adaptation, the flexibility in making the best of the situation and also transferring challenges, sorry, transforming challenges into opportunities. That's what makes really, really, really good product managers, but also people skills, right? You need to be a good leader. You need to have a potential to lead people and to, again, empower them and to get thereby in into your vision. And so if, if you think about all those skills, I think the technical skills are the ones that are least important because technical skills are easily acquirable, but you need to focus on, on, on or I, I used to focus on, on, on soft skills, right? I focus on leadership skills, on character, quality, flexibility. And that's how I leave my choice. Thanks, Thomas. Finley, can we just come to you on that one? Yeah, so to echo um, Tawash's uh, point on the complexity of this question, um, obviously optimal size and skill set depends on the scale of the challenge or the problem statement you're, you're tackling as well as your current growth strategy. Um, something that, um, yeah, my experience is solely within early stage startup. Um, so we always have to consider is you know what is our current business strategy what are we pushing towards and therefore the team has to mold to to fit that um so yeah i guess another another challenge with small scale startup is that resourcing is a constant challenge so um yeah to answer your question you know what's optimal team size it's it's, it's never big enough and um, you know we're always pushing to try and uh, try and bring in more resource um and because that's not always a possibility, we have to spread ourselves more, uh, more widely. So um, we bring in, um, uh, you know, reports that have the capacity to span multiple different departments. So, for example, you know, we've got a sales guy who's classically trained in product design. That gives us the opportunity to um, not only provide uh, commercial expertise when um, trying to gather insight, but they also have the capacity to consider it from a product point of view. So having that sort of uh, range and that sort of breadth in the team allows us to provide the required skills for the particular challenge you're tackling day to day, which is constantly changing. Thanks, Finley. I just wanted to touch on something that Thomas mentioned there. So um, obviously, as you all know, my role day to day as a recruitment consultant is often providing resources into business and a lot of um, which a lot of which is is product and tech teams as well. So. One question that I quite often get asked by clients is, um, 
you know, we need this candidate to be tick all the boxes tech wise, but also have all the the soft skills as well, which you guys kind of touched on a little bit there. So, I suppose a little bit of a question from from me to to you all would be, um, how do we kind of advise people wanting to move up into the product career to improve their soft skills? Is it something that we just learn on the job day to day, or is it something you know people can be doing on the side with? you know, a range of different various things that they can take on themselves to improve their own personal soft skills. I'm speaking to quite a lot of product managers or sort of aspiring product managers, I should say. And and this is the very same question people are asking me, right? So what do I need to do in order to get in product? Because as you as you said, job stakes are always quite heavy, right? They always require you to get fifty years of experience and great technical skills and and you know, and be young and, and vital. Um but I think if you think about your life as a product, if you think about your hobby as a product, you can always try to develop your product skills, right? Leadership, go to your friends, try to get them together, try to be at some events together, right? Try to maybe write some newsletters, some books, some blog, whatever. Demonstrate your leadership skills in this in this particular case. If there's a problem in your current role, in your current organization, be the product representative, right? And try to find opportunities to grow your product. Try to find places where you can contribute the value. And whereas you will, you might not be required to or allowed to write a product strategy for day one in your current place, you know, fresh ideas are always welcome. And when you start shining as the person who always has good ideas and who is able to bring people together, that's a nice jump start towards you entering formally the product organization. Yeah, I think that's a nice, that's a way of approaching it. I mean, when I'm speaking to people outside of tech and describing what I do, I basically describe myself as a middleman between everybody, which is kind of how it feels. Like you are the kind of apex of all these different concerns and balls that you juggle. And I think another aspect to that that's really key is prioritization, like awareness of or trying to figure out through all through the mass of all that information what, what is important to do next and why, and then trying to communicate that back to everyone and then get everyone behind that. Um, I think that's also like a really, a really, really key thing. Um, and yeah, I think products are really interesting discipline in that regard. Like, I, you know, you know what uh, Finley was saying about like the startup environment. I mean, I'm not classically trained in product. I comes from like doing um, like music and being a freelancer and juggling many, many balls. Like when I came into a startup, I was again just juggling many balls, and it took me a number of years to realize that what I was actually doing was product. Um, I didn't even realize it was a discipline really until only maybe four or five years ago. And it was like, oh, right, that actually describes all the things that I actually do um, in a in very coherent way. So I think like that jack of all trades, that prioritization, that that guidance of something through a process and through the minds and the work of various stakeholders is kind of um, is, a, is an important thing. Yeah. Following on from, from those points, you know, product is essentially problem solving. And everything we do day to day in all walks of life involves you know, we encounter problems and we have to solve them. So building product skills is not something we have to be classically trained in. You know, we just we engage in product product solving um day to day. So the best advice that I have people trying to, you know, build these skills is just to engage in places where problems exist, right? So there's lots of pro- um startup networks. And wherever you are, there's going to be lots of networks out there that are looking, that have problems, are looking to solve them. So just simply engaging with these networks, you're introducing yourself to all these different problem statements that you can then work through. And uh, you're building these yeah, soft skills naturally. 
Yeah, I think you mentioned being a very important part of, of point of networks. One of the things you can also improve as a product is being it your own networks. Go to the product tanking tabs, right? Find your own product networks in your local community and start meeting those people and then start, start speaking to those people. And then by, by the virtue of doing that, your network will grow exponentially and then more and more opportunities will come, come your way as well. Thanks, everyone. Um, I suppose just on that point, Thomas, we should move on to, to you with your uh, first question. Um, you've touched on a couple of things with culture in general, but one of the things you wanted to discuss first of all was uh, the impact on culture and whether trust matters within a, an organisation. Do you want to just give us a little bit of, of context behind that? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. So I think I've been lucky enough to be to be able to work in multiple organisations over over the uh, past twenty odd years, and what I have noticed is that uh, there are some organisations where micromanagement is a very, very, very strong presence, right? People can't, or managers can't leave without checking into a diary twice a day and questioning or doubting your schedule, right? And on the other hand, and I think my current place is, is a great example of it. On the other hand, there are, there, are, there, are, there are companies where trust is everywhere, where you do have all the freedom in the world to, to perform and to do whatever you want to do, as long as it meets the criteria for job and, and the vision and strategy of the organization. So what I'm quite keen to understand is what is your experience in trusting people and versus micromanaging people. Does micromanagement help or maybe it jeopardizes performance and efficiency of the teams? A very good question and always, uh, I think as soon as you refresh your LinkedIn page, you always see something to do with micromanagement, remote working or something along those lines. And obviously seeing you all are working remotely now, I imagine trust is embedded within your teams one way or another. So um, Finley, have we come to you first on that one? Uh, yeah, really interesting question. Um, and yeah, one we'll, we'll all tackle. Um, at at Robosco, we have gone through multiple different phases and um, constantly trying to find that balance between process and progress. Um, trust comes hand in hand with progress as long as you know we can trust in that trust that we're delivering. So um, yeah, I, I feel like you know, trust is a big part of satisfaction. You know, without it, team can't really feel comfortable in the role. Um, it comes back to transparency again, you know, communication, you know, as long as we communicate clearly what we require from our reports, um, we can be confident in the trust that we deliver to them. So I feel like at Robustle now we found the correct balance and that we've stepped it right back. We've deformalized the um, gatekeeper process we used to have. Um, and we're trying to instill a degree of fluency within the team around product ownership. Um, and that's helped us to build trust and to gain a sort of autonomy within each of our team members. So yeah, trust super important, absolutely. Thanks, Philly. Matt, can we come to you on that one? Uh, yeah, that's, that's a great question. To be honest, I think trust is probably the one of the most important things actually in like building, maintaining teams. Because uh, if you don't feel like you're trusted, you're not going to stick around. Um, you're also not going to do your good work because you're really nervous. Like you need to be trusted to make mistakes. Like when you, you learn by making mistakes, that's really important. I think when you're a small company as well, you're very nervous about making mistakes, and you're nervous about your team making mistakes because like the the margin of error is quite low. Um, but you, yeah, but you do need you do need to make those mistakes, and people need to feel like they're doing that in order to do good work. Like I've seen that like a lot, and you know, I, as a manager, I've made the mistake as well of like micromanaging people. Like I'll definitely put my hands up and say that. Um, and you've got to find your way to try really try not to do it because it's not it's not a high performance strategy at all. 
and you won't attract or maintain high-performing people if you if you behave like that. That I think that's pretty clear through everyone's experience, documentation, research, etc. So finding your way to trust uh, trust your employees and also like managing up to feel like people can also trust you as well. I think is also key. Like finding a way to do that as well is really important. Um, because again, I think your superiors need to trust you as well. That's also a very important thing. And that trickles down to every level if if you can like build that into the whole organization. Like, I just wanted uh, to go back to your to your point about trust and progress. What comes first, trust or progress? Mm-hmm. Excellent question. I would say they're kind of parallel, to be honest, because if there's no trust, you probably won't make a lot of progress and vice versa. But they, they run as parallel lines because if, if one of them stops, the other one will probably stop as well. Like they're like these these like maintaining the health of those things is like like symbiotic. I think. Would you say you agree with that, Finley? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. It's a different thing of a chicken and egg sort of um, you know situation. You you certainly do require both of them. Um, the process again, I mean, we come back to individual um, reports require individual um, you know, approaches. So some people will require trust in order to progress. Um, but some people need to evidence progression before they can build that trust. Um, so yeah, chicken and egg, uh, we just need to be reactive. What would you think, Thomas? Do you agree? I think I do agree. I think it also becomes, again, part of the of that wider culture. If there is the culture of, of, of I allow you to fail, then by default there is a level of trust, uh, which will then instill progress. But I think if you want to make a progress, you will not be able to make good enough progress without the trust being in place already. So in my head, the trust, or at least a level of trust, is a prerequisite for the progress that can then further, you know, improve the, the, the trust levels, etc. And then, yes, we go to that chicken and egg scenario, that one impacts the other one as well. Perfect, thank you. I think um, it leads quite nicely onto another question you had as well about retention. So, um, you know, trust and retention almost go hand in hand, don't they? So um, one of the questions you had, Thomas, was how can we best motivate people to boost their performance and increase the retention levels? Um do you want to start by giving us again a little bit of context behind that, and I suppose your views on things as well? Yeah, I think I think it's 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 wider because again, it's it's it, it connects the retention and the culture, and then the culture and the trust, and the culture and motivation. So everything we have talked talked so far today, it is a very nice sort of starting point towards what we can do to to increase the retention, right? And I know I think Finlay, it was you mentioning that, that there is there is a challenge between finding the balance between retention and finding new people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you know, how we can create that culture, or maybe I'll, I'll, I'll reward it in a slightly different way. Imagine imagining that we are in a in an environment that lacks trust. How we can change it to instill that trust to improve retention place. What's your experience of seeing that? Uh, Mac, can we come to you first on that? Creating trust. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. Um, I think um, I think Finley kind of said it before. It's like proving that you can be trusted is a good way to do it. But I mean, if if there isn't already the culture of you, I'm willing to trust you in the first place, that's difficult. Um, like, yeah, like anything, I mean, trying to use data to, to back up what you're saying and back up your achievements is very helpful. Sometimes it's not always that cut and dried, though. Um, especially, you know, in some of the things that we do, it's difficult. Sometimes the cadence of measurement of these things can be very difficult as well. Like you might have made some great changes that you know you might wait may not have an impact for six months. That's sometimes very difficult. Um, yeah, that's a it's a it's a it's a tricky one. Um, I think with retention in general, trying to remember like why people came to work for you in the first place is also quite important. 
and like that varies as well as being you know between people's uh personalities the stage they may be at, at there in the career you know, like where they want to go next what they want to learn and you know you you know you you may well just be like a part of this person's journey through their career and through their life right so it's sort of like thinking about what they're interested in where they want to go why and trying to trying to provide them that and i think if you do find a way to do that they will trust you and then also stay with you and be be retained thanks matt finley can we come to you on that yeah yeah on the subject of building trust um transparency is a very important piece here however transparency comes with trust so they have to yeah, work hand in hand uh, so we get clarity on expectation is probably the first step to building trust and um, in a say in the case it's a new hire you know they're still getting used to the landscape you know the, the culture that you're trying to trying to deliver so if we're clear on the expectation then they can build their confidence in what they're delivering and then we can increase our transparency whilst trust is being um yeah you know while we're building this trust and then we get to this point where we're very clear on what we're trying to achieve as a company and um, transparency then builds buy-in buy-in then improves retention and overall satisfaction and the ultimate goal for us is yeah we want to make sure that we have satisfied you know, reports that are retained for one period of time um, and are motivated whilst whilst doing that. And I think there's a step-by-step process there. Yeah. Thanks, Finley. I think that leads us quite nice, nicely as well into um, one of the questions you wanted to ask about, um, I suppose it's almost like a recruitment question, but it was what can be done to be best um, so that we can best ensure that you employ the right candidate when in a hiring loop. So um, I guess that builds, again, quite a lot on trust and transparency and and avoid the micromanagement. Do you want to give us a little bit of, of context behind that one? Uh, yeah, without going into too much specific detail on why I posed this question. Um, and yeah, in the early stage, startup budgets are tight um, and hiring the wrong person at the wrong time can be catastrophic for cash flow. So um, the process, so something that uh, I feel like I haven't quite got right yet is that initial process of making sure you're hiring the correct candidate and the right candidate for, for that uh, for the individual position yeah during a hiring loop, you know, we, we've gone through a couple hiring loops obviously throughout the, the years have been uh, in business and um you know we've done it right a lot um, but there's also many occasions where it's not kind of worked out so um yeah looking for ideas you know advice insight into how we can make sure that we are employing the right candidate and making sure that it's the right time to bring them in uh, Thomas, should we go with you first on that one? Yeah, it's a very interesting question. Um, and I've got plenty of, of experiences on that. And I think my first experience and my first advice is uh, one of the rules I always follow in any recruitment is um, don't hire assholes. Sorry for the French. But if you if you hire one bad apple, then suddenly what you will be able to see is that one that that, that bad apple spreads to your organization, right? It, it jeopardizes efficiency, jeopardizes culture, jeopardizes everything else. So making sure that you can eliminate those bad apples early on in the process is very, very important. Now, when it comes to then taking one step further, because now right now you know who you don't want to have in place, but then you also need to make the decision who you want to have in place, right? I think to me, it all boils down to listening to people, listening to candidates, to what candidates are saying, and then trying to read between the lines as well. And because someone might tell you, I've got, you know, 25 years worth of experience in product management, I've done X, Y, and Z, but then 
you know, sometimes they might actually be lacking the essence and the all the all the soft or technical skills that are required for you. And you know, whether they can they're able to write a user story, probably yes. Is it good enough? Probably yes. But you know, what value this particular individual will put or will bring to your organization? I think this is another question you need to answer and look holistically, right? So you have a need right now, but what does this mean for me and for my company in the next six to 36 months, right? How will this person contribute to the overall success and progress of the organization? And then think about the the decision from that lens as well. Does the person, you know, learn quickly? How, how adaptable that person is? How nice or not nice that person is? How much it aligns or that person aligns with the values and culture and uh, beliefs of your own company? Because if there's a misalignment in values, then there will be no happiness after all, right? After some period of time. So this is also quite critical for the person to be a true believer in your company and in the product that you deliver and also in your mission. Matt, would you agree with that? Anything to add? Yeah, definitely. I think there's some stuff that Thomas mentioned that I think was really interesting. There's, there's kind of like two parts to this. There's like um, personality of, of, you know, the actual, you know, and the cultural fit of the actual candidate, making sure that, that fits your organization. But another one is even just making sure like, to look inward a little bit first and be like, well, we are actually hiring the right role here. Is this what we actually need to drive the business forward? Is this helping us getting to our goals? I mean, that's also a mistake we've made at the time. To like, we hired people too early to try and do a particular type of thing that we weren't ready for, and try to do it in a way that we weren't ready for, or it wasn't the right fit. So, making sure that you really, even the role that you're hiring for, is right for you, because you can bring in great people, but. And they can be a great fit as well, culturally and personally and values wise and all these things. But, you know, unless they're going to come in at the right time to do the right role, it's going to drive your whole business forward. They're also going to be a failure. And that's not even their fault. It's your fault for not really understanding the context. Um, Another thing about like hiring the right people and culture, I think, is like hiring to grow your culture and expand it in a positive way. I think people like... I don't know how it's going to sound, but again, as a kind of like white middle class straight man, it's very easy to you to go and hire people who are this fit and again with the same like sense of humor, same values and all this type of stuff. It, it really benefits you to stretch that and that actually grows your culture and that person can add so much to your organization and really help it grow in a really, really positive way beyond the actual kind of goals that that role might have. I think that's also a really good thing to be thinking about. Um, but yeah, I think the main takeaway is like, do you really even need this person right now? Is this for what's going to drive you forward? Because even if you get the right person for that, that might not actually help you and it might hinder everything that you're trying to do. Exactly. I remember myself being hired to an organization sometime ago, many, many years ago, where I was an overhire and I'd been hired just because there was a budget for another, uh, another role. And then I had nothing to do. And I survived there a few months, but that was pretty much it. I had no motivation whatsoever. So making that call is quite important. So the other thing I quickly wanted to add is, is uh, I think much you said about you know hiring people that that match with your personality, etc., etc., etc. I think for me, um, it's also important to understand what are your weak points, right? And then hire people to address those weak points because you don't want to create a team and culture which is strong in one particular area, but quite not so strong in other areas. You really want to look at those characteristics and traits that you and your organizations are lacking at the moment, but then try to fit that into the equation as well. Yeah, just to expand on that a little bit, I think that's a great point, like fleshing out the weaknesses that you've got, like personally, or maybe in your team and in your organization. And like, a, you know, a little bit of friction is actually helpful, you know, like just a little bit, not too much, because then it becomes kind of productive. But if there's a little bit of disagreement about like, 
you know, that, that triggers discussion about, you know, why are we really doing this thing rather than just rubber stamping it and everyone just agreeing? Yeah, that can also be really, really valuable. So I think like hiring with that in mind is also really, really powerful. Thanks, Matt and Thomas. You both kind of raised some good points on on diversity. I suppose a lot of a lot of clients will come to us as as recruitment consultants and say, you know, we're really looking to improve diversity within the team. How do we do that? So it can sometimes be a touchy subject without you know discriminating certain individuals in in any one way, but. Um, yeah, I'd, I know Finley, you're going through a couple of, of hiring processes at the moment. Is it something you're looking for? Are you hoping to improve diversity within the team or is it is that kind of almost a, a mixed bag within your, your list of priorities? Uh, yeah, certainly something we, um, we're we strongly considering. We, we, we always have. Um, the truth is, within the startup scene, um, there is a heavy um, sort of founder, I don't want to say culture, but... Um, Founders tend to come from you know universities. They tend to be um, white men that are privately educated. So it's a uh, there's always this process of uh, diversifying as the company grows. So you know we we've done that strongly. Um, you know we we're a team now. Uh, you know, mul- multiple women. Um, and we uh, you know we feel that that's that that's certainly built you know a strong culture. You know. And that's something we want to try and encourage. So, um, it's something we do consider, you know, when hiring. But uh, yeah, just to talk about um the points around, yes, it, it does relate to diversification. But um, yeah, we need to always consider when we're hiring. You know, why are we hiring? What's it for? And ultimately, it's to, for growth, right? So, we don't want to be hiring the same people that we currently have. Um, we're going to stagnate our culture. And uh, we don't want to hire the same people that have uh, universal skills. So we want to make sure that we are filling in these gaps that currently exist. So identifying those um, before we start the hiring loop is essential to find that right person. Diversity in technology, it's one of my favorite topics. Most of the tech companies these days are white male um, heavy. And I think there is is a nice, nice um, or very dangerous avenue for us to go to. Because if we are struggling with diversity as the company in tech organizations or product organizations, um, it is easy to impose certain practices that that we think might improve diversity, but actually they are promote exclusion. So what I mean by that is, if you're in the situation of having 95% of white males in the organization, do not create policies that suddenly force you to look at females discarding males or to look at people of color or other ethnic background just because you are lacking those particular characteristics in your company. Diversify from up front, right? Ignore the background, just be very, very flexible, but not try to avoid creating that artificial diversity regime because it actually doesn't promote it. It totally excludes it. Massively agree with that, Thomas, and it's something I experience probably on a day-to-day basis of clients coming to me and saying, you know, we're, we're only looking to hire a female, then the next hire, and you know, I've got to go back to them often and say, so you're literally excluding a lot of, like, talent within the area because, you know, you're just solely focusing on a female, for instance. So, like, some we can advise certain things like anonymizing CVs without names and stuff to um, completely be, like, transparent throughout the process. Um, you know, we can say we can provide a range of different candidates and uh, they'll be diverse within their own respects so you know you can have a look at the background and the profiles set up conversations and hopefully you know judge people based on their soft skills and also the technical skills rather than just from a, a generic background um has anyone else had any kind of experiences of, of that in the past matt finley 
um, yeah, it's, uh, there's no magic bullet for this, unfortunately. It's, uh, I mean, the important thing is that everyone is aware of the problem. And, you know, we are all trying our best to try and figure that out. Like, as you say, as recruiters, as people who hire, as organizations, like, it's not going to happen overnight. And I agree that, like, the... Yeah, I mean, you can't force this stuff as well. I mean, that's not doing anyone any favors for who you're hiring. If you're hiring them for the wrong reason, then that's also very disrespectful to them. If, yeah, if you're saying, like, I'm only going to hire a woman for this position, like, that, and that's not very respectful for them and their abilities and anyone else who's acquiring. But, yeah, I definitely don't know the answer to this. I don't think anybody does. But at least you were talking about it, and that's a positive first step. Yeah, and I think it's kind of getting the balance, isn't it? Um, so if we move on, we've got a, a few minutes for a couple of different questions. So, Finley, one of the uh, questions you wanted to ask was um, whether um, people in employing agile methodology and if so to what degree um do you want to kind of give me a little bit of, of context and or some context around um how you guys are operating at the moment and i suppose your your view on on agile in general yeah certainly thanks thanks rachel uh so yeah agile's uh methodology that's obviously highly popular um it, it's pushed on uh, certainly when i was you know um starting out in my career um, it was pushed on me and you know we did start using Airbuskill and um, we still do in a, a certain form however um, we found that yeah coming back to that process versus you know progress challenge and um, we were finding that there was quite a lot of emphasis on process which was degrading our overall output um, so we we currently yeah we loosely employ agile in the form of like stand-ups fortnightly goal setting and um, we've removed the um, more formalized you know, sprint processes uh, and we're finding that we are um, more efficient than we were when we were initially you know working through that formalized process um, however there's a lot of value loss as a result of that as well so it'd be great to try and understand um, you know Matt and Thomas's um, experience uh, with agile and how they use it in their practice. Uh, Thomas, should we come to you first on that one? Yep. Uh, Agile, It's it, it has been hard for many, many years, especially when it first came to, to the function many, many years ago, right? Everyone wanted to do Agile, or many people. There were there were two counts, right? Either Agile lovers or Agile haters. And then there was this huge fight between between those two groups. But I think the, we, we have progressed quite a lot since then, and and many, many sort of publications have been um, written about, about that very topic, and from my own perspective and experience, it's not about following agile to the book, right? It is about taking the best of the approaches that work for your organization, for your team, and keeping them in, but also removing what doesn't what doesn't work for you, right? It's it's no point in us doing a, a sprint and then putting that in the waterfall format, right? It's and um, if if daily stand-ups drag to two hours, doesn't maybe work for you. If they take five minutes, maybe it's too short and it doesn't work for you either. So I think my advice is try to think about what works for you personally, what your team really needs, uh, because the team always know what they want and how they want to work. So listen to them and then try to take the, the best bits out of everything that, that you have tried and put together your robotical agile, right? And your own Finlay agile, right? What works for you. And I think this is where, where Agile goes to, right? There are some discussions about Agile 2.0 and how it adapts nicely to, to, to the future. But to me, again, it's yet another framework that tries to put a blanket approach over every single situation. But you cannot really apply that blanket framework to every single company the same way. 
look at Spotify, right? We've got this nice Spotify approach with pods and 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 and, and other uh, other 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 things. But if you take the Spotify approach and try, try to apply it to organization X, Y, and Z, it's likely to fail because there's different culture, different products, different challenges. People maybe just don't like it. So think about what might work for you. Try, experiment. Don't be afraid of failure. And then retain what works for you and abandon what doesn't. Like Thomas, Matt, anything to add on that? Do you guys work yeah. on that? Totally agree with Thomas. I mean, I think uh, it's funny when you describe Agile to people, uh, it, it comes across like some really, really weird, quirky religion um, that dictates you do X, Y, and Z. And, you know, having spoken to and met people from all over the industry in very er- every area of software, like no one actually does it by the book. Like people like to say they do, but they actually don't. Everyone has their own spin on it because we've all learned that it's a good guideline. There's some really valuable things about it, but you have to adapt it. You have to try it. And, you know, I was, I was sort of they really laugh at that someone was mentioning, oh, you're like the two hour retro, you know, like, you know, we've had those meetings. They're not really very helpful to everyone because everyone just comes out raging and you've like set up this forum for people to just vent in a way that was probably not very productive overall. And the same way with planning. We used to have planning meetings that want to go on for hours and it's not helpful. So um, finding a way that does work for you for that. Uh, I think it's another thing that makes me think about like frameworks as well in general. Like everyone's drowning in frameworks and like every, every man and his dog has got a framework to fix all your problems, right? And um, people like to think that you introduce one system into your organization, it's going to fix all your problems. It's going to, you know, and you're going to empower growth like 500% overnight. Like it doesn't really work like that. Or if it does, it might work in a few places, but not all. So like being a bit flexible and having a bit of give and take with these things and maybe hybridizing some of these things what works and the you know the metric should be like forward progress both in terms of like your goals as an organization but also as people you know we're 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 wanting to learn people want to be motivated to come to work they want to be excited about what they're doing i think if you put a process into place that's like you know stopping that that's really harmful and like again we've learned from learned from doing that the wrong way that's definitely like you want to stay away from doing that so overall agile overall good but you have to bend it to your will Thanks, Matt. I think it leads us quite nicely to one of the, the agile questions that you had as well, actually. So um, it was all around handling communication um, with an agile product um, and how you kind of process that communication within the rest of the organization. So um, would you mind giving us a little bit of context behind that? Uh, yes. So, um, uh, yeah, so I think because we're still quite a young kind of product organization, there are some areas of the company that are more like educated or willing to understand these things than others. Uh, and it's finding ways to kind of bring people along with this ambition that you have to try this process or framework. Um, getting people to kind of understand that and understand the value of it can often be quite difficult. Um, I've definitely experienced that. Um, just interested to see what challenges people have had kind of in that area and how they've addressed them. Emily, we'll go with you first on that one. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, we, 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 I guess, our experience is kind of running parallel with yours, Matt, in that it is quite a heavy framework to just throw um, onto everybody uh, within the company. Um, I guess reiterating our current status, so we're not a huge team, um, and everyone has to engage in all areas. So um, we initially. You know, try to have certain managers for the agile process throughout the company and we're finding that um, that didn't really work because certain people were not engaged in that, that sort of framework um, so instead yeah we, we now maybe loosely follow sort of the agile process uh, but we involve the full team at certain you know, touch points throughout the process um, to gather and their 
perhaps non-product specific insight at these key moments and that be, that helps to um not apply a huge amount of demand on those individuals while still gathering their insight and um, this valuable you know for our product development process and um, it's taken us a long time to get there and um, you see there was a, pr- a point where it was quite um it's quite heavy demands and uh there wasn't that much engagement in the process and it, it was leaving large gaps and um, so yeah I'm, I'm glad to say that we we've kind of found the balance now um for that and it's you know it's, into, it's owned by the product team yeah. Thanks, Finley. Thomas, anything to add on that? Very good points, Finley. I think, you know, every single communication or, or showcasing the value of certain processes or, frame, or, or frameworks, it should always come step by step, right? With small steps. Uh, there will be some people or some of the organizations that will enforce a top down approach saying that this is how we do products from today. This is the sprint. This is the cadence of value delivery, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But if you do so, then people will not really follow that. Or they even even if they do, they will not buy into that. So I think you need to take people on the journey. You need to show them the value and the benefits of whatever you're trying to organize. And uh, quite often people are afraid of change, right? Change is scary. And um, change puts people outside of their comfort zone. Change makes people sort of go backwards rather than forward sometimes. So uh, there are many frameworks on how to deal with change and, and communication. But I think the one of the one of the common points across all of them is, as you say, communication and bring people together on the journey. Understand their pain points, understand their reluctance maybe to accept certain changes, and understand their point of view on the current situation, and then try to address those points with your with your process, and then try to not necessarily address it by talking and and, and describing how this will look like, but address it by showing this is the solution, this is how it can look like. Do you like it or not? And then listen to the feedback. Right, because maybe your ideas aren't, aren't the greatest. Maybe they are. Maybe they are not. But the key to to, to get that buy-in as well is to make sure that people are heard and and, and are listened to. So try to accommodate their feedback and then communicate both ways with them. Thanks, Thomas. Some really interesting points across uh, the panel there. So uh, I think just with with time and everything, we'll we'll leave it at that. So that was today's Evolution Exchange podcast. Our thanks to all our guests for joining us today and sharing their views with us. We would like you to thank you for listening and hope you can join us again next time.